for a few generations now, those of us in college admissions or enrollment management could surf on a nice long wave of constant demographic growth. The application increases that have helped selective colleges drive down admission rates were enhanced by ever more students applying to college. The ability for us to even have thousands and thousands of colleges and universities in this country, two- and four-year alike, urban, suburban, rural, selective, and non-selective, has been fueled by ever more warm bodies arriving onto planet Earth via the United States thanks to their parents' um, efforts. However, this is all due to change and change in a major way. In many ways, things are already changing, but the change that my guest, Professor Nathan Graw of Carleton College, is predicting in his new book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education, is so big, so unprecedented, that he's hoping administrators at every level of higher education take notice fast and make some giant changes in order to keep their lights on. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, an admissions counselor at the University of Rochester, who interviews agents of doom, soothsayers of tectonic future change that is set to forever alter the way we provide a higher education in America. Of course, as you'll hear, Professor Craw is a little bummed that when it comes to this book, the bleeding has done all of the leading, so to speak, because what his book really is, is a tool to help those of us, or shall I say, those of us who get paid way more to worry about things like this than your host here, understand these changes so that we can ourselves change and therefore remain viable and continue to provide a higher education to people in this country. Quickly, if you're new to the podcast, hello, welcome. I encourage you to take a look around at the other episodes that I've done um, after you get done listening to this one, of course, and then subscribe to it so you don't miss all of the fascinating conversations I will inevitably be cranking out in the future. I hope that those of you who are listening, new and old alike, might take a moment and rate the show on iTunes. So here's how you do it. You press pause, you type the name of this show, that's uh, The Crush, into the iTunes search bar. Click on the show once you find it past the uh, the wine one that has like the same word. Hit ratings and review, and then you can go ahead and hit the little star that most corresponds to your feelings about this show. The more stars, the merrier. Maybe it's five. That's the that's the best one. Thanks, guys. Okay, so the basic deal is this: a few different sociological and economic factors created something that Professor Graw is calling the birth dearth. Contributing to the birth dearth in a major way is the fact that in this country, our national birth rate dropped 13% in five years during the Great Recession. So this means that the population of college-age people in the U.S., people that people like me in college admissions spend so much time talking to, is scheduled to drop to really dramatic levels right around the year 2030. It'll drop so much that some places, if they don't do anything about it, are almost certain to go out of business. It's true that many who still do something about it might even go out of business all the same. What Professor Graw has done is to create the Higher Education Demand Index, or HEDI, to look at this in much more granular detail. How will these demographics shift in particular geographic regions of the U.S.? How will these changes affect both two- and four-year colleges? What does it mean for both really selective schools and also not-so-selective regional colleges and universities, for community colleges? 
What does the role of a student's parents having attended college play? And how will this picture look for different races and ethnicities? And of these fewer college-bound students in the future, how many of them are going to have the money that colleges depend on in the form of tuition revenue? Let's get right to it and hear the conversation with Professor Graw, who I talked to from his home in Northfield, Minnesota. How are you doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. Um, it's uh, snowy and chilly here in New York City, but probably not anywhere near to the extent. I was going to say. What are you guys dealing today with? Today we're warm. We're we're positive twelve for a high. So. Ooh. Yeah, getting toasty. So you're sitting outside in shorts and thinking about it's getting close. Yeah. Thinking about mowing the lawn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have five billion questions and substantially less time than that to actually get through them all. Alrighty. Um, tell me first where you teach and, and what you teach and what's your sort of academic background. So I teach economics at Carleton College in Minnesota. Um, my specialty is in labor economics, and my research has focused largely on uh, family economics, and in particular how family background intersects with education choices. Uh, I've been at Carleton now for 19 years. I uh, did my PhD work at the University of Chicago before that. I am from Oregon, and your book reminds me a little bit, especially the way that it's kind of being received by people, of this New Yorker article that came out uh, a year or so ago about this massive earthquake that we're overdue for uh, off the you know Pacific Northwest that is going to completely demolish like everything from you know Alaska right. to Northern California, right? Um, except in this case, your your book is not not a meteorological or geological event, but it's something that is a force that is at this point totally beyond our control and something that you know you talk about you identify the issues but then talk about how we might be able to sort of mitigate its effects and if i could just sort of summarize it your book essentially says that colleges and universities are dependent on student attendance to keep the lights on and that there's this huge demographic shift downward in the number of students that are going to be going to college in the not-too-distant future, and that if nobody does anything about it, it could really wreak havoc on our national models of how we are able to provide this education, especially at a high level of quality and sort of equitably across groups. Is that is that a, a fair uh, estimation of, of what you talk about? Yes. I, I would say that the press coverage of the book has overemphasized the calamity side, um, <laughs> which press coverage is likely to do. Um, they got to sell papers, you know? Exactly. Everything you said is true, um, but I would add a couple things. One is that we, we do have a lead time on this. Uh, we can see it coming. Kids are born 18 years before they reach college age. And so that should give us, as higher education institutions, some opportunities to make decisions that make sense for what is going to be a remarkable drop, but not, you know, a 15% drop in student numbers, for instance, is is meaningful and it's going to have a lot of ripple effects. But if you have 18 years or now maybe 10 years in advance warning, you can actually make some choices that will make that feel a lot more manageable. So there's that side. And then also um, the book notes that while the headcount data create forces that are going to be strong. And with 70% of kids attending some college uh, in their first six years after high school graduation, I'm sorry, first four years after high school graduation, there's just no way that you aren't going to see decreases in broad measures of college going. 
But on the other hand, if, if we look within the data, we also see some other trends that are positive. For instance, uh, the past increase in educational acquisition means that increasingly parents have a connection to higher education. And while that connection may not mean the same thing as it did 20 years ago, it does increase the odds that those parents are going to be sending kids to college. And we also see some demographic shifts toward uh, subgroups that have a high attachment, uh, namely uh, Asian Americans are growing in number. And while a lot of the focus has been placed uh, nationally on the rise in the Hispanic population, for those of us in higher education, uh, the Asian population is a pretty consistent uh, demographic group that attends college. And so rising numbers there mean some increased numbers of students. So, you know, I hope that the story that people get from reading the book is a little bit more nuanced that recognizes that, yes, these are big changes and we need to take note, but also recognizes the advantage that if we position ourselves now uh, for change, we can do something about this. So, I mean, this is interesting because, I mean, this is not, I mean, when you look ahead and you understand, you know, looking at the at the uh, results that you get from from your model, the um, higher education demand index, which we're going to go into, I mean, it, I think probably a lot of people could have figured this out. Why you? Where'd this book come from? Didn't we know this stuff before? What's new about this that we weren't aware of before? So the old part is the headcount. Um, whether you look at the witchy data or a number of other sources, uh, you'll see people for several years now saying, look, the number of kids being born has fallen. And so we don't have as many kids. Another part that is an old part is the shifting in the demographics toward the Hispanic Southwest, that uh, the counts of children in the Northeast in particular have been way down. And the counts of kids in the Southwest and the Hispanic Southwest in particular um, haven't been down as much. Um, what was new was I, I sat through a strategic planning conversation at Carleton uh, that was kicked off with a, a lot of institutional data and national data. And the witchy forecasts were among them. And I saw this map that has this big gaping red hole in the Northeast. And my first thought was, wow, that's really, really scary because that's where we draw a lot of students from. It's where a lot of higher education institutions draw students from. Right. Um, but my second thought was, I have no idea if this map means anything for me because College going is different from simply being alive. The witchy data uh, do a little bit better than alive. They're forecasting high school graduation. But whether those kids will go to college is a separate question. Whether they will go to a four-year college is an even narrower question. Whether they'll go to a four-year college like mine, well, that's so much narrower that the witchy data doesn't really give me any information that would seem to be strong enough to stand on when making a big strategic decision for an institution. And so my thought was, okay, maybe these headcount data tell the story. Maybe that's everything that needs to be known is, is in this picture already. But it's conceivable that when we estimate the probability of college going or we estimate the probability of going to a college of a particular type, we get very different stories. And in fact, that is what we find, that while for many regional colleges, four-year colleges, for instance, the witchy forecasts are not a bad forecast of what's to come. If we look at um, some demographic subgroups, if we look at uh, subgroups by institution type, we see different stories from what you see in the headcount data that meaningfully alter um, the landscape as colleges think about, well, what are we going to actually do about this? Um, I think there's just enough information in what was known before the book to be very anxious, but not enough information to say, okay, and, and this is actionable. We can actually then you know, make plans, um, recognizing that, that forecasts are forecasts, 
uh, things can change between now and the intervening time period. But if you can't even distinguish between a student who goes to Brown and a student who goes to the local uh, community college, then neither institution, neither Brown nor the community college, are likely to look at those forecasts as actionable data. They're likely to say, well, it makes me anxious, but now let's move on to something that, I, you know, information that right. I can actually use. And I should say, before we go on too further, that you, you're saying the word witchy, which is uh, the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education. This has long been a source of some demographic data that um, people in college admissions and, and other realms of higher education have used to sort of forecast the demand for their product that, that you talk about in your book, right? Yes. But it's got some limitations that you expand on, um, which we will dig into. What were you surprised to find out the most? Is there anything that you were just like, huh, that's pretty fascinating that you didn't expect as you were looking into this? Well, there are a number of things that, that run counter to the dominant narrative. Um, for instance, elite institutions are expected to see an increase in demand. That's largely driven by the fact that parent education is rising and the number of Asian Americans is increasing. And we're going to go through, and I want to define some of these terms um, a little later on, but you just brought up elite institutions, which you define in your book as being those ranked number one through 50 on the U.S. News and World Report list. Exactly. And so because we've got colleges and universities, that's approximately 100 institutions, a little bit more once you account for ties. Um, Those institutions are likely to see an increase in demand. Um, a number of people have pointed out, well, but those, those institutions weren't going to struggle with demographic change anyway. I mean, they might have to drop their standards in order to fill their class, but they're going to fill their class. And of course, that's true. Um, but what the Hedy is forecasting is that they won't have to drop their standards. In fact, they're going to have some choice about which students they take because there are an increasing number of students there. By contrast, um, everybody outside that top 50 rank is expected to see... Um, a decrease, at least if you look nationally. Of course, when you look by state or metropolitan area, you can you can get some more nuanced uh, outcomes, which of course is relevant for institutions that recruit locally. Um, but that second tier then has an interesting possibility of picking up the students who spill over from the top institutions, assuming that they don't increase rapidly in the next few years. Um, so those stories are a little uh, counter to the dominant narrative. Another counter story has to do with the first generation uh, students. When we look at the data and we see the shift in population to the Hispanic Southwest in particular, the Southwest and Hispanics, both independently and when you put them together, are not strongly attached to higher education. A number of people have then supposed that, well, this means that we're going to see a continued increase in the number of first generation students. Uh, the Hedy says that's not likely to be the case at almost any institution type because of recent increases in college uptake among the generation that is now the parents. Um, so when we look forward over the next 15 or 20 years, because there are an increasing number of people who have uh, a college degree, we're going to have an increase in the number of kids whose parents have college degrees. Um, so that, that also alters some perceptions of, of what the future is likely to look like. So you talk about the HEDI, the Higher Education Demand Index is a thing that you that you created to, to, to the, on which your research is based, um, which I think to pick one phrase, one line out of your book to kind of describe what this is, it says it takes as given the patterns of today and simply traces out the consequences of demographic change within that context. Um, first, what is an index? So the... You know, broadly speaking, an index is just a set of numbers um, where you're typically focused more on the rate of change than on the absolute levels. 
in the case of Hetty, it's actually a little bit more than an index because it's going to be predicting for each uh, state and metropolitan area the number of students that are uh, predicted to go to a college of a particular type. Um, so in essence, what the, the idea here was to provide forecasts and not just an aggregate forecast, but forecasts broken down by institution types. So we're looking at the top 50 colleges and universities, the next 50 colleges and universities, colleges and universities that are four-year institutions but outside the top 100, and then two-year colleges. Um, looking at each of those subgroups separately um, for each state and metropolitan area. Right. Okay. And we mentioned that you get you get your data from you know the, the uh, from Wichi, and then you mentioned also the American Community Survey. What where where else were you relying on information to to feed this model? Yeah. So the the model isn't fed by the Wichi data. Okay. I did compare to the Wichi forecast in my forecast when I'm predicting um, something akin to college. Uh, Either, either looking at broad college attendance or just being alive at age 18, I get patterns that look very, very much like the witchy data. Okay. The underlying model has two parts. Um, first, you have the headcount data. That I'm getting from the American Community Survey, um, or the ACS. It is a, an operation of the Census Bureau. The questions that they're asking on the American Community Survey are questions that people might remember from the census long form before 2010. Right, they're a lot more detailed. Exactly. So that, that allows me to look at the number of kids in a given birth cohort and break it down by demographic groups, race, family income, parent education, uh, family structure, and a number of other, other variables. Okay. Uh, the, second, the second data source is then the Education Longitudinal Survey of 2002. Um, so I've got this headcount data, and what I want to do is weight that headcount data by the probability of college attendance. And the ELS took a sample of sophomores, about 16,000 sophomores in the year 2002, and then longitudinally tracked them, watching whether they went to college. And critically, in the restricted portion of the data, we actually know what colleges they attended. And so I can look at the individual colleges attended, and I can note whether or not they're a two-year college, a four-year college, a four-year college of a given rank, and so on. And I can estimate then based on the same demographic markers that I've got in the ac- the American Community Survey, I can, in the ELS, estimate the probability of college attendance for various demographic types. And then I simply take that probability model and apply it to the headcount data from the Census Bureau to then forecast out um, the college attendance numbers into the future. Okay, so this is fundamentally an economic issue. You're an economist and economics is fundamentally about supply and demand. So when we're talking about um, the issue in your book, what are we talking about when we talk about supply and demand? Yeah, so this focuses a lot on the demand side and even more broadly on the potential demand side. So for instance, when I forecast um, the demand for elite institutions and I find that the number of students with demographic markers that make them look like they're bound for an elite college is going to increase by say 15% and then it's going to fall back down um, in the late 2020s. I don't actually anticipate that that's going to happen because I think places that are in those, those elite institutions are not likely to expand their class sizes just to subsequently experience a painful contraction. Um, so it's more about potential demand. Um, you can also imagine some other things changing in the future that would matter quite a bit. So for instance, 
in the 1980s and 90s, we had a predicted uh, downturn in higher education. That was based off of a birth dearth that happened in the 70s. Um, so the argument was we just don't have as many kids, and so the demand for um, higher education is going to be really low in the 80s and 90s. And, of course, instead what happened was the number of people attending college increased to levels never seen before. So what was it that broke the forecast there? And there's a number of factors. One was that the economic environment did something that hadn't been anticipated. We had a dramatic increase in the returns to higher education so that the college wage premium relative to high school attendance uh, tripled. Well, okay, a bunch of people all of a sudden wanted college. Um, the second thing was that institutions changed their strategies. So while it was a modest increase, we saw an increase in international students um, during that time period. Uh, a little bit more dramatically, we saw an increase in the number of women students uh, so that we got to parity and beyond, where before that time period we had more men than women studying in higher education institutions. And then thirdly, we saw institutions responding to an increased interest among non-traditional students to go back and get retrained. Non-traditional so, students being those who are, you know, not in the sort of typical 18 to 22 age group, but adults. Exactly. Who, yeah. So right now we have approximately one quarter of college attenders in the age 26 or above range. Um, that wasn't the case in the 1970s. That was a relatively new phenomenon. So we saw things change, uh, both on the supply side, who it was that the, the colleges were looking to serve, and on the demand side, who wanted to go to college, that made the forecasts break down. And I think as we look forward over the next years, we can anticipate that things are going to be different than the model forecasts, because I wouldn't expect, in particular, institutions facing big demographic pressure to just say, well, we're just going to continue doing the same old, same old, and we'll just let the chips fall where they may. Um, you can imagine institutions lowering entrance standards. You can imagine um, institutions reaching out to new community groups. You can imagine institutions expanding international student populations, though obviously there's some national debates right now that may limit their ability to do that. Um, yeah, and, and all of those changes are likely to then alter the context in ways that are going to change what the forecasts are even for, or change what the outcomes are, for, even for the domestic market. One of the big ways that colleges are needing to kind of grapple with this at some point is to is to regard the rate of college attendance, which is to say that, you know, we are, uh, I think, below generally where a lot of people would like to be in terms of rate of people who could go to college actually attending. Um, how does how does that sort of fig figure into your model and and what does the rate of college attendance uh, look like sort of broadly now and into the future? So if you look right now, about 70% of high school graduates will attend some kind of college. Um, I'm not honestly sure that we can hope that that number is going to get dramatically higher. If we look at some subgroups of the population, however, we see some opportunity. So for instance, African-Americans and um, and Hispanic Americans are less likely to attend college than white Americans or at the, at the very top end, Asian Americans. And if we recruit differently, if we uh, alter K-12 uh, education policies so that we prepare students differently, if we have different um, public policy, one could imagine expanding the attendance rate, at least among those groups who currently have lower attendance rates, than others. Um, 
but those are minority subgroups. And so even if you were much parity, you're not likely to move the ultimate aggregate number dramatically. And one of the things that the Hedy allows us to do, once you have a model uh, that, that has these probabilities, you can ask what-if questions, like what if we were to decrease the importance of income in college-going so that low-income students and middle-income students, college-going behaviors looked more like the highest-income students? Or what if we made all of the racial groups look more like Asian-Americans who are the highest uh, education acquisition groups? Well, it turns out you can do a dramatic policy change in closing those gaps um, so that where currently you have 40% of students um, getting a bachelor's degree, maybe it would be 50%. So this is a big policy initiative, and yet you're still not going to meaningfully alter the landscape for higher education. It's just not enough students. We're increasing the fraction of students who are going to college, but the numbers available are plummeting so quickly, especially due to the birth dearth, that you still have the same kinds of pictures when you look out in the late 2020s. Um, so I think there are opportunities to expand uh, college access, and I think we should pursue them for all sorts of reasons. I think the um, institutions of higher education are going to be especially keen on doing that over the next 10 years because it's one way that they can grapple with um, the demographic shifts ahead. But on the other hand, if institutions are thinking that that will be the magic bullet that allows them to avoid other uncomfortable choices, that would make me anxious because I don't, I don't think it's reasonable to hope for a big enough movement there just by closing uh, access gaps to meaningfully alter the demographic story that we are facing. And the, the demographic fa- story that we're facing, you've mentioned now a couple times the birth dearth fantastic phrase, uh, that on the one hand is is the result, I think, of, of you know, sort of baby boomers aging out, right, and the, and the sort of knock-on effects of that. Uh, but then you also talk about the effect on the national fertility rate that uh, was the result of the Great Recession that we went through in the uh, sort of latter half of the 2000s, right? Exactly. So following 2008, um, over the next two or three years, the total fertility rate fell by about 13%. I mean, we just um, have not really seen a drop like that in our recent history. So we, we have. If you look at uh, what followed World War II, of course, we had the baby boom. And then in the 60s and 70s, we saw a reduction in uh, fertility. Um, that reduction was actually bigger than what we're facing now. Um, however... Um, the baby boom preceded that birth dearth in the 60s and 70s. And so when we see the reduction in fertility, about half of it is just a return to normal. We have a big blip following World War II, and okay, we, nobody expected that blip to continue. Um, so when we look at, at the reduction in fertility in the 70s that's not simply a return to normal following the baby boom, the birth dearth we're facing right now is of similar magnitude. What makes it different, though, is in the... Um, in the 60s and 70s, it's pretty easy to understand why that was happening. We had a, an increase um, of female labor force participation. There were opportunities opening up for women. Uh, you have things like uh, contraception becoming widely available so that the opportunity cost of having kids for women is going up dramatically, and so not surprisingly, they're having fewer kids. In the late 2000s, 
we don't have any similar happy economic story that explains what's going on in fertility. Instead, what we have is apparently the financial crisis causing young people to feel that it's not um, an opportune time to have kids. For a few years, you could hope that, well, maybe this was just a delay in having kids. And so, well, there might be a, a, a low point that colleges might get those missed students back, if you will, just by having them come at a later time. And there is no doubt that there has been, in recent years, a shift toward later fertility for women. So that's part of the story. But on the other hand, the fertility rate falling by, by 13 percentage points is more than simply a delay. And now it, we've, we've seen year after year that it hasn't rebounded. Um, I think at this point, enough time has passed that it's pretty clear that we're not going to get those same kids back at a, at a later date. Mm-hmm. We've just got a large number of missing kids, if you will, um, from the profile. Right. And you know, one important question is, will, will we ever get back to a fertility rate like we had in the mid-2000s, um, or are we going to stay at this very, uh, very low rate? And that has implications for all sorts of things. We're right now below the replacement rate, so you know, if, if we didn't have immigration, our population will begin... Um, decreasing at some point. So that's an entirely separate but important public policy question. But in addition to that, um, so long as the the fertility rate remains low, um, we're talking about in a few years, higher education institutions entering, in essence, a new normal. Um, When change happens, uh, psychologists tell us that we're kind of reluctant to see paradigm shifts. We prefer to see things as as continuities. Um, And I'm afraid what we're about to experience is a change where many of us might think, okay, well, surely this will pass soon and we'll get back to normal, quote unquote, where instead what we need to be thinking is what well, this is the new normal. Mm-hmm. This, you know, this lower number of students is simply the market as it is and we need to deal with that reality. How is the reality going to be? I'm going to shift and talk about four-year colleges since I think that's that, that tends to be the majority of the, uh, uh, the interest that's out there in the topic, but how is the reality going to be different for two-year colleges than might be the case for four-year colleges? So if, if things play out as forecasted, I would say that the two-year colleges um, are going to follow a path that's pretty similar to what the familiar witchy data uh, suggests. So more or less the two-year colleges follow the population. And if we look at regional four-year institutions, we see a similar pattern. So regional four-year institutions being those ranked outside the top 100 colleges or universities. Where we get a deviation is, is toward the top end of the four-year colleges. So with the four-year colleges, if things play out um, as forecast, things are a little bit easier at the top end. I think, though, that the reality is going to be when you, when you see that, okay, at the two-year colleges, we're going to see pressure. And the regional four-year colleges, which are the mass of the four-year uh, industry are going to experience pressure. We can anticipate that there's going to be a lot of uh, change in institutional practices. And so how exactly this plays out remains to be seen. Two-year colleges, for instance, are playing with the idea of um, a community college bachelor's degree. Well, if they can expand into providing bachelor's degrees, then all of a sudden maybe two-year colleges can uh, survive and maintain their enrollments by offering themselves up as a cheaper alternative to the four-year colleges that students might otherwise attend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, similarly, you can anticipate that there's going to be shifts, say, at second-tier institutions who are trying to position themselves to be the beneficiaries of highly qualified students who could get into an elite school but may be left behind because the elite schools simply aren't 
uh, growing that fast. So I think there's going to be a, uh, a real premium on agility and nimbleness as institutions try to see, um, if possible, paths through this that don't require um, more difficult cuts and things like that. And I think some institutions will find a way by being uh, creatively competitive with um, with those around them. Well, historically, it's been difficult for uh, public institutions to be as nimble, as agile as private institutions, right? That that tends to be the um, that tends to be the case. Um, though I would, yeah, you know, I, I would say that no institutions that I see in higher education seem particularly nimble <laughs> relative to um, other private sector businesses. We move at a very deliberate pace. Perhaps this is why it's valuable to be looking at this 18 years out because it's going to take that long to address it. Yeah. We might be lucky that we have 18 years and maybe yeah. that won't be enough for some of us. Right. But you know, I think for instance, um, the public institutions in recent years have expanded into honors colleges as a way to compete with the national institutions looking for those students who might be looking for um, a more elite form of education. And at least until recently, the public institutions have been able to offer those those uh, honors colleges at a price that's a lot less than what the private colleges have charged. Right um, Now, in the last 10 years, state legislatures have pulled back their support for public higher education, and so the, the price gap is closing. But there's an opportunity, and, and I think it's evidence that public institutions have been nimble in some sense, um, creating an entire different um, market niche that they're trying to serve as, as one way to better compete with the, the private. One of the things that you talk about when you talk about four-year colleges in these three tiers of elite, national, and regional kind of competing for this same shrinking pool of students. You talk about a trickle-down effect happening. Can you talk about that? Can you describe that? Sure. So if you look at the, the top end, those top 50 rank institutions, they can expect um, something on the order of a 10% increase in the number of students that have demographic markers that suggest that they are in the elite market. Um, well, so one possibility is that schools like Carleton could expand the number of students that we recruit. But given that this is in the context of ultimately a shrinking population, I'm not sure why we would want to do that. It might be safer for us to say, you know, let's just more or less stay at our current level and be content with the fact that we're not experiencing a decrease in enrollment. And in fact, if we stay at our current level and there are more students who are interested in what we offer, we can be choosier and we can instead uh, benefit by being more selective. Um, well, if we're not increasing our number of seats available, and yet the number of students in our market is increasing, where are those students going to? It seems that they're going to trickle down then to other national colleges ranked, say, between 51 and 100, or perhaps to the, the regional schools uh, that are ranked outside the top 100. Unfortunately, the number of students that we're talking about increasing at the top isn't enough to fill in the gaps that are likely to emerge uh, further downstream. And so it seems like at best some of the national colleges can benefit and few of the regional colleges are likely to be able to um, to hope for much relief just because it's just a numbers game. The number of students we're talking about at the top are just relatively smaller when compared to the much larger regional institutions. Why do you use the U.S. News list as um, a way to sort of 
parse out and understand the uh, range of, of higher education options at the four-year level? So you could, you could, in theory, break it down in any number of ways. Um, one reason to look at that measure of, of uh, rankings is because it's correlated with a lot of things that people have studied. So, for instance, Carolyn Hoxby has done a lot of research uh, recently on the increasing uh, sorting that's going on so that colleges who are elite colleges are tapping into an ever you know, the, the kids who have the high SAT scores are even more likely to go to colleges with other kids who have high SAT scores. Um, so there's a, a line of research that you're tapping into. Um, it's also a, a concept that people understand. Mm-hmm. And as the data suggests, it's a concept that um, that does predict some difference. But in right. theory, you could have broken it down by any number of different groups. I did try some other groups, like, for instance, you could look at historically uh, black colleges and universities. You could look at women's colleges. The problem was that the number of kids in the education longitudinal survey who attended those groups are just too few it's really small, yeah. to estimate the probability model effectively. What so, do you think? I'm, I'm curious, you know, because we spend a lot of time in college admissions telling people to ignore these lists, you know, and so far as they are a yep. rank order of like good to bad. Um, yep. do you, do, what effect do you think if maybe... Um, more students that could go to elite colleges are going elsewhere instead. Do you think that's going to have an impact on our sort of national sense of uh, uh, prestige of these kinds of places that aren't at the very top of this list? And what kind of impact do you think um, institutional you know, policies to address these changes is liable to have on the U.S. news list, uh, if any at all? Yeah, so first of all, I would, I would agree that we should ignore the rankings unless, of course, my institution comes out at or near the top. Clearly. It's critically important. Yeah. So um, obviously these, these ranking lists should be taken with a grain of salt. On the other hand, I'm not looking at, you know, here are the top two institutions. I'm saying, okay, in the, in the top 50, and if you look at, at the, the top 50 colleges and universities, the names on that list are names that you would no doubt recognize and say, yeah, that's, that's a different group than the group that is, say, outside the top 100 or even ranked 51 to 100. So, you know, I'm, I'm using a very, very baggy mm-hmm. uh, representation of those U.S. news uh, rankings. Okay. Um, and, you know, if, if you went to anybody else's rankings, I suspect you would get the exact same results. Well, not exact same, but qualitatively almost identical results. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you go to Barron's and you say, well, who, you know, who's the top 50 colleges and who are the top 50 universities, the overlap with the U.S. news rankings is going to be intense. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we do see an increase in number of students who have the demographic markers of going to an elite college, what will that do to these rankings in the future? I think it'll just um, tighten them up, I guess. If if the colleges at the top have the ability to become even more selective still then what Hoxby is reporting about this increasing sorting across institutions is just going to continue even further so that the at least observable markers of what students are like at the top end, say of the top 50 versus at the bottom end of the top 50 will just become more stark. Um, you know, in essence, it just allows for even greater sorting. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing exactly. On one hand, um, you know, some of that sorting puts students who are able to learn well together in similar institutions, and that can be really helpful. On the other hand, it can also create sort of echo chambers where students are sitting next to people whose experiences are exactly like their own, in which case they're not really able to learn much about alternative perspectives 
by sitting next to those students. So, yeah, I'll leave to others whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I suspect that the elite colleges, um, because they're going to have this rising market, are going to be able to be even more selective than they were in the past, whereas people at the bottom of the, the uh, ranking order, because they're facing a decrease in the number of students, are going to be tempted to lower standards in order to uh, just make their class. You put those two things together, and you're likely to see greater uh, difference right. in terms of the the sorting. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to switch and talk about money because this is another giant factor here because it's, as you mentioned, it's it's one thing to disregard the sort of raw number of students that might be able to attend, but, uh, you know, for a lot of different reasons, their ability to pay factors into uh, this future really prominently. And I'm just curious, you know, it seems like there are so many other ways that colleges and universities get money. Why is tuition so critical or the ability for these students to pay so critical to the university and college's future? Yeah, so there certainly are a lot of other ways that colleges get money. Um, one source for both publics and privates is government. Um, the publics obviously get a larger share uh, from state and local and, and federal governments, but all institutions are getting, almost all institutions are getting federal support or state support of some kind. Um, if you look at the publics, um, one reason to focus on tuition is because public funding is falling out of style. Um, the financial crisis put some obvious pressures on state budgets, and they seem to have pulled back from higher education, perhaps because they point out that, hey, there are other revenue streams for higher education. So if we don't provide higher education funding, you can go ask the parents and the students involved to pay more. Whereas if we don't provide, say, money for um, K-12, they don't have another place to turn. If we don't provide money for highways, they're relatively few places we can turn. We can right, but these places, it's it's a totally, uh, it's, as you say, in style to have shifted the tax burden, right, to uh, to students who uh, will shoulder that burden in the form of tuition as opposed to, you know, a state's po- taxpaying population chipping in. Yeah, so at the state level, it used to be about 10, 15 years ago that about a third of the cost of education was paid for by the family, and now it's about half. So this has been a pretty uh, pronounced swing. If you look at privates, um, some privates, obviously high-profile privates like Princeton and Harvard, have uh, very deep uh, endowments. They're doing okay. That's right. And and so maybe tuition is a smaller deal for them. They can, for instance, have tuition policies that say if your income falls below $60,000, we won't make you pay a dime for tuition um, because it's not that big a part of their budget model to begin with. But almost almost all private schools have endowments that are small enough that they are still heavily dependent on tuition. And tuition is the thing that they can hope to do something about. The, the endowment is invested. They're trying already to get as much money out of the endowment as they can. But that's, that's sort of a given mm-hmm. from policy perspective. And so a lot does fall on tuition as a result. One of the things, one of the, the you know long list of things that everybody is panicking about in this country is the seemingly eye-popping uh, sticker price of colleges and the degree to which it is seemingly going up uh, year over year. And especially these days, you know, I mean, every parent is saying, how did it get this way? It was not this way when I was going to college. How does that factor into uh, the way that we think about this this potential future? Yeah, well, and I, I think that that trend is only, only going to increase as well, um, because while that in the past has largely been a story about private 
tuition sticker prices. Increasingly, we see that public institutions are having to increase their tuitions at alarming rates because the state is pulling back its funding, and so they have to get the money from somewhere. Um, so we're seeing an increasing number of institutions that are taking this high sticker price, high financial aid model. Um, you know, I, I think there's every reason to believe that that's likely to continue. Um, I think some private institutions have, in essence, tapped out what they can accomplish with that. I mean, the basic idea is um, you're going to charge high-income families that can afford to pay a lot of money. But when you get to the point where almost no students on your campus are able to pay the, the sticker price, at that point, increasing the sticker price any further just doesn't have any effect because everybody's on financial aid or almost everybody's on financial aid. And there are a fair number of privates that are in that situation now where they effectively don't have uh, full-pay students, in which case their sticker price isn't all that important. Um, the the net price is, is what matters. So yeah, I, I don't think there's anything in this model that suggests there's going to be a lot to change in terms of that being the model. I think as the number of students decrease, there's going to be an increased competition for those students uh, with smaller supply being the student might be a better situation, say in 10 years, you might be able to negotiate over financial aid and um, extract some merit-based aid from one institution because you're playing them against another. And both institutions know that students are in short supply and if they can get um, $30,000 out of you, well, you know, Maybe they prefer to get thirty-five, but they'd rather get thirty thousand than nothing. Mm -hmm. And so they might offer you a, a sweeter financial deal. I think families are going to benefit to some degree um, in that negotiation. And there seems to be—it's um, not like a booming trend, but something of a trend where certain states are offering uh, sweetheart deals for folks to attend the colleges in their home states. Some, like New York, with their Excelsior scholarship are touting this as free college. And there's a lot of caveats there about the degree to which it, it really is free. But um, how is this going to impact things? Would it impact things? I, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious too, are policies that reduce the cost of college or policies that would increase aid to families to be able to afford college be more productive on this issue of, of, of attendance rates? I think a lot of colleges are going to try to find out. Um, I mean, certainly the the economic literature has something to say. There's uh, some work by uh, Tom Kane that looks at, um, does it matter whether you cut the tuition rate or if you increase aid? You know, in theory, if I cut the tuition by $1,000 or I give you a $1,000 scholarship, it, it has the same bottom line effect, and so it should have the same effect in your behavior. But what he finds is that the sticker price matters more than the aid, even in cases where it seems pretty obvious, like students who are uh, eligible for Pell Grants, it's pretty obvious that they're going to get the aid. Even so, they respond more to the sticker price. So I, I think some, some institutional systems might be having to think really hard about that. Um, do we pursue the high, the high uh, fee, high aid model, uh, because that can generate some excess revenues, but that's predicated on students recognizing that it's the net tuition that matters and not being scared off by the sticker price. Alternatively, they could go for a, a lower price strategy, but then they're leaving money on the table, perhaps. So some student, some schools are going to have to confront that. I heard of another um, uh, administrator at another uh, New England school system, 
that was talking about um, potentially something akin to the Excelsior program, but connecting it with working within the state. Um, they figured that there are industry needs for students, and if the students are no longer going to be uh, produced by New England families, um, that doesn't mean that the industry in the area won't still have intense needs for well-trained uh, workforces. And so could you imagine having such a state offer a program where there was debt forgiveness, say, if you continued to work in the state for X years after graduation, and now not focusing necessarily on uh, keeping home state students at their institutions, but rather recruiting, say, from the Midwest or from the West, so that students come from those states to the New England area in order to provide the New England area with the workforce that it needs. Right. Those are interesting creative ideas for how might you respond to a reduction in the number of students, which of course is, from my perspective in higher education, a real challenge because I, I need to have a job, so I need students to teach. But if you think about industry that's on the tail end of what we do, it's a problem for them as well because they need people to work. Right. And if you list actually three possible paths that these institutions can take in response. I'm sure there's innumerable possibilities, but these seem like the three big ones. You talk about the hard-nosed path, which would be kind of increasing revenue or cutting costs. You talk about the hopeful path, which would be you know the increase of the student attendance rates that we talked about, and then the nimble path, which would be the more the strategic redeployment of recruitment resources. What do you have to say about these three? And, and is there one that you sort of prefer? Is there a preferable one? Or, or is this really going to be uh, dependent on each institution's priorities and, and, and the degree to which they're able to take up one or the other? I, I think it really is the latter, that each institution is going to be in a different context because they're in different parts of the country, because the opportunities around them uh, are so different. Um, my my concern would be that too many institutions are going to assume that something other than the hard-nosed path will work. Right? It's, it's nice to assume that, well, um, surely we can somehow expand our market by drawing students who wouldn't have otherwise attended, or alternatively, surely we can outcompete some of our peers. And so even though the numbers aren't going to be higher in total, we'll, we'll make it work out for our enrollments. Um, the data suggests that's not, that's not possible to be true for everybody. There are just not enough students out there for, for those, those stories or versions of them to be true for everybody. Some of us are going to face some of the harder stories, whether it's uh, reductions in, in the size of our institutions or mergers with neighboring institutions or, in the most extreme cases, institutions going out of business. And so... And we've already seen some of that. We have. And, and people like uh, Moody's are predicting that we're going to see more of that in coming years. So... I, I fear that some institutions that need to take a, a more hard-nosed approach and say, look, we're going to have fewer numbers, we need to make plans accordingly, will resist that conclusion too long. And then they might be facing more dire consequences where they haven't prepared and, and therefore they, they have few options that remain. So all three options, I think, are going to be in play and we'll see uh, exciting versions of all three. Um, the one that I would love to see avoided is uh, the, I'm going to stick my head in the sand and just hope that I'm in one of the optimistic cases when all the evidence suggests that there's no way that's going to work. And then we face a big mess that comes crashing down. That that would be the case to avoid. To what extent are these uh, collaborative 
or or is there the potential for these to be co- collaboratively addressed across sort of state lines and types of institution as opposed to every individual institution sort of looking at this and saying like this is we we just have to take care of our own shop here and everybody else is going to do what everybody else is going to do yeah that's a great question certainly within state systems it could be very counterproductive to have everybody strategizing for how they're going to eat everybody else's lunch um you know for instance to your colleges that think you know our best strategy is to produce a four-year bachelor's um, and four-year institutions that are run by the same same state system strategizing on how they're going to poach kids from community colleges, that's probably not particularly efficient because it's a zero-sum game. And so if there can be more coordination, you would expect a better outcome for the system. Unfortunately, the better outcome for the system might be a less good outcome for individual institutions. And so I think it's uh, it's likely that you're going to have some of that um, that counterproductive competition because forces are going to push people in that direction. To the extent that we look at the system, our system of higher education as you know the sort of chief engine of, of of social mobility, are any of the strategies that you suggest here sort of more progressive than any of the others in terms of being able to not just address the can we keep the lights on issue, but can we do it in such a way that we are still being that primary engine of, of important social mobilities, especially given the degree which you've highlighted throughout your book, the, the, the impact that the prior attendance by parents has, has on the overall sort of health of the system and health of, of the country, the more arguably educated everyone is, the, the, the better off we all are economically and otherwise. You know, ironically, I would say there are actually opportunities for that within the retrenchment option of the the hard-nosed, we're going to have to make cuts. Um, We know that in recent years, institutions have added numbers of faculty in the adjunct category and become less dependent on faculty who have a long-term vested interest in the institution. And the research suggests that that has sort of predictable consequences for student learning. Um, If one thing we do is we reduce the number of uh, staff at some institutions, and we do it by uh, consolidating positions in the tenure subset of the faculty and reducing the number of adjunct lines, you could come out of the uh, crisis with at least the silver lining of a more committed, professionalized uh, professoriate at your institution. Similarly, if student numbers are going down, uh, states are likely to say, well, then we would like to reduce the level of funding. But if the level of funding were to fall at a slower rate than the number of students, even as the state would experience some savings on, in aggregate, the per-pupil expenditure level could increase. And research suggests that um, it's not so much selectivity of institutions that predicts labor market outcomes as the amount that's spent on instruction. Uh, so it would be possible then that um, some of these two-year colleges and regional four-year schools, which are at a disadvantage currently, relatively speaking, in terms of per-pupil expenditures, uh, they might go through a a significant budget cut but come out the tail end on a per-pupil level in a better funding situation. So, you know, I I think there there are opportunities even in in the tough side, maybe especially in the tough side, for higher education to continue to meet that part of its mission and even do a better job of providing a more equitable distribution of, of quality of higher education. 
I want to return to this idea of prestige, and I wonder because it seems like everybody is kind of like trying to, you know, crawl over each other to the top of the pyramid, you know, and, and attend these sort of elite institutions. And if they can't get there, well, they just fall down to the the other tiers, you know. And I wonder if if part of the, I mean, this is this is like the ultimate pipe dream as far as I'm concerned. But I mean, don't you don't you think that if we were able to in some way actually affect our national obsession with prestige and eliteness that this might resolve a lot of the issues that you see coming? Well, it's not going to resolve them in the sense that there just aren't as many students. And so there are people who are currently employed who are going to have a hard time to be employed with, with lower demand. That said, obviously, I think it would be a better world if we thought more about matching and less about prestige. Um, I think we all want um, say HVAC employees who are working on the homes that we live in to be highly qualified, well-trained uh, HVAC workers. And that takes place at a technical college that may not have a whole lot of prestige, but you know, if the moisture level in your house in winter is too high and so your windows are sweating and, and, and rotting out as a result, you all of a sudden realize, boy, you know, I kind of wish that the HVAC person that built my house had had better training um you know so if if we can shift toward thinking about let's provide every student with the education that best fits them rather than some sort of model where everybody should aspire to the same thing i think we would all be better off and i think that's certainly been a concern of mine for the last oh 20 25 years there's been an increasing mantra of everybody should get a college and by that it seems to mean a four-year college education. I don't think that that's necessarily so. I see a lot of high school students who would actually be poorly served by the experience that they would get at my institution. Um, It wouldn't match with their life goals, and it could easily create all sorts of harms as they tried to fit into a box that they weren't meant to fit into. Much better if they went to an institution that that spoke to the goals that they had and supported them in achieving those goals. Um, you know, and we, we certainly do seem to have gotten a fixation on one particular kind of college experience. Last question. The group who should be most concerned here with the subject of your book is certainly the institutions that are providing education to this winnowing number of students. But for somebody like me who has a daughter that will be going to college right as the bottom (laughs) drops out here, uh, and for parents who have kids that are going to be entering the system more or less as the... uh, whatever the opposite is of the wave crest, cresting, you know, the, uh, the tide receding, uh, what should I be thinking about? How, are, uh, how should we, as parents of this future college-bound group during this really unique demographic time, how should we be um, thinking about our approach to that process in, in differently, if at all, based on what you talk about in your book? Yeah, so I think it, it seems to set up pretty well for someone like your daughter, um, you know, Robert Eastman has argued that when you have a very small birth cohort, um, simple supply and demand, in essence, means a more satisfying life outcome. And there's a fair amount of evidence that, that he's right, that small cohorts land better in the job market and that those initial job market successes can be relatively persistent. Um, you know, I think parents in your situation can anticipate a little bit more competition for 
their children in the higher education market so they might be able to land at a better institution than they otherwise thought or they might get a better financial aid deal than they otherwise thought. Um, there are a lot of reasons for parents to think that it might work out pretty well. I was just talking to a, um, this is a, a prep school counselor. Um, so he's thinking about higher education as a destination for the students he's working on. And he pointed out that the current drive toward excessive accolades that students have to build these huge resumes so that when they apply to a college, um, they'll be even looked at that pressure might, um, be mitigated somewhat because there are going to be fewer students. And so students don't have to be involved in 17 charity efforts and three varsity sports <laughs> and, 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 mm -hmm. you know, and, and speak seven languages in order to get colleges to look at them the same way. So I think there's some, um, some positive benefits for the families who do have kids in those generations as they go through the, the cycle. Becomes a buyer's market. It does, exactly. At least more so than it was before. I mean, it's still going to be hard to get into the best places. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it's still going to be hard to get through those places. But on the margin, it should become more of a buyer's market. Professor Nathan Graw, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've got another appointment come up. You've been very generous with your time. Thanks for this work. I, I, I hope that uh, a lot of people read it and talk about it. Uh, but more than anything, do something about it, right? Yeah, that's the message I would have. I, I, I don't want the book's message to simply be doom and gloom as much as that does sell papers, but rather to be, let's plan. Let's talk about this and, and get ahead of it rather than having it get ahead of us. So thank you very much. I appreciate the time. So the world will be my daughter's demographic oyster. Awesome. That part's pretty cool. But it's clear to me that the primary takeaway here is, hey, college administrator types, get into those boardrooms and figure out what you're going to do. In some cases, this means, what are we going to do to make sure that we can get the right number of people in the seats with the right amount of ability to give us tuition dollars and stuff? But it also means that the culture of who is going to college and therefore who we are all likely to see in these colleges on our campuses, and I'm including community colleges here, is going to look and feel different. According to Professor Graw, nationwide, the number of non-Hispanic white students of college-going age is going to go down 15%. The number of African-American students will also go down 8%. The number of Asian-American students will go up 35%. And the number of Hispanic students, while increasing in general, according to Graw's model, are likely to grow in size more at two-year institutions than four-year institutions. The number of students whose parents did not go to college themselves, or first-generation collegians, as we call them, will also increase. So what are we going to do not only to make sure that the students show up and we're able to get the right amount of them so we have the money to afford to show up, but how are we going to change and grow to support a more culturally different grouping of students on our campuses than we're used to seeing today? Maybe we won't even notice. Hopefully, if we don't notice, it's because we've already continued to do the work that a lot of us are doing now already to take each of our students into account and to gracefully integrate them into our campus community, whoever they are and wherever they come from. So pick up the book and read it yourself. It's interesting. If you're interested in this country in general, you don't have to just be interested in college. It's a you know, bonus if you are. It's full of wonderful nuggets uh, like this one here. Did you know that a student from the New England Census Division is 10 times more likely to attend a top 50 U.S. news college than a student from the West South Central Census Division? 
Did you know that a child living in non-metropolitan Georgia at age 10 has a better than 60% probability of changing location by age 18 when she's ready to go to college if she is Hispanic or Asian and living with a mother with at least a high school diploma? Now you do. It'll make for better college administration and better cocktail party banter, I guarantee. All right, thanks very much for listening, you guys. I've got a handful more interviews that I have done lately that are all due for uh, impending release. So keep your ears and eyes peeled for those. In the meantime, be good to each other and spread love. Thanks, guys.